thing is in your bulletin, but Mal has asked if I read it from the message, so you might just want to listen. It's um, obviously, it's going to be different. Matthew 13, uh, verses 1 to 9, and then verses uh, 18 to 23. At about that same time, Jesus left the house and sat on the bench, on the beach. In no time at all, a crowd gathered along the shoreline, forcing him to get into a boat. And using the boat as a pulpit, he addressed the congregation, telling stories. What do you make of this? A farmer planted seed. As he scattered the seed, some of it fell on the road and the birds ate it. Some fell on the gravel. It sprouted quickly, but did not put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Some fell on the weeds. As it came up, it was strangled by the weeds. Some fell on good earth and produced a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. Are you listening to this? Really listening? Study this story of the farmer planting seed. When anyone hears news of the kingdom and doesn't take it in, it just remains on the surface. And so the evil one comes along and plucks it right out of that person's heart. This is the seed that the farmer scatters on the road. The seed cast in the gravel... This is the person who hears and instantly responds with enthusiasm. But there's no soil of character. And so when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there is nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds is the person who hears the kingdom news, but weeds of worry and illusions of getting more and wanting everything under the sun strangle what was heard and nothing comes of it. The seed cast on good earth is the person who hears and takes in the news and then produces a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lois. Good morning, everyone. Well, I um, appreciated your little devotional comment there about people uh, reaching euphoria at the top of the mountain and uh, coming to doom on the way down that's a little bit of what a little bit about what has been um, on my heart I think of um, the Apostle Paul when he says to put on the armor of God and when it's all over to be standing uh, the struggle is uh, is ominous, but uh, so that's a good reminder to us. Thank you. I'm just going to put some stuff aside here. <coughs> Wherever Jesus went, people were drawn to him. In the case that Lois, uh, in the a scenario that Lois just read to us, we're told that he left his house and went to uh, sit on the beach. I think you said bench. It, there might have been there might have been a bench at the beach. <clears throat> Immediately, people started to gather around, and this continued to the point that if he wanted to address them as a group, he had to climb into a boat and remove a little way from the shoreline, and then use the prow of the boat as a pulpit. There are several instances in the New Testament where in a rural area, Jesus would have thousands of people gather around him to hear what he had to say. 
it seems to me that most of his large assemblies of listeners occurred in rural areas. In 2010, Sharon and I sailed on a Mediterranean cruise, which included two days in Israel. It was a tremendous experience. Our second day included a tour of the northern region, and we spent several hours at the mountain location where it's believed that uh, Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Today, there's a large uh, church near the top with parking and tourist facilities. The Sea of Galilee could be seen in the distance, and as a member of our group read some scripture, I tried to block out the development and focus on the remoteness of the setting. I remember noticing partway down the hill a scattering of plastic bags and other litter, the type of things that you might see after a music festival. This experience helped me to appreciate how normal and everyday the encounters Jesus had with people were. Many Renaissance paintings, um, while beautiful objects of art, fail to fully portray the normalness with which Jesus interacted with people in everyday settings. Because I spent my first 18 years on a farm in Manitoba, the agricultural theme of much of Jesus' teaching has always resonated with me. And today's passage is no exception. We're introduced to a farmer while he's planting seed. The mechanics of this procedure at that time in history was primitive and it was likely to see him carrying a sack of grain over his shoulder and reaching in while he was walking and casting or sowing the seed, broadcasting. I think it was referred to. And he would be throwing the seed out and away from, from himself. As Jesus spoke, this spreading of the seed was a metaphor for the preaching of God's word and a different response from people who hear the word. As the farmer cast the seed, which was not an exact science, some of it could be expected to miss the tilled and prepared soil and fall on the hardened, hardened surfaces of the road. Birds came and easily ate these kernels, and Jesus interpreted this phenomenon as news of the kingdom of God, which is not taken in, and while it remains on the surface, the evil one comes and plucks it out of that person's heart. Some kernels fall on the gravel, which has compromised soil value, and there's not enough soil to guarantee germination and growth. Jesus said this represented the person who hears the words of God's kingdom and responds instantly with enthusiasm. But since there's no soil of character, there's nothing to show for it when this person's emotions wear off and testing circumstances arrive in his life. Then some kernels fall into an area where weeds are already growing. This, he says, represented God's kingdom message while heard, being strangled to death by worry and illusions about getting and wanting more. Finally, the seed which lands on good soil represents the person who hears and takes in the news of God's kingdom and then produces a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. I want to highlight uh, a point in considering these verses. In the instance of the first description, the seed falls on the hard surface uh, and Jesus says the evil one comes and plucks it out of the person's heart. That is not mentioned in the reaction from the other people. It bears comment that in the process of deciding what to do with God's message of the kingdom, although requiring some intellectual action from our brain, it is primarily a response from our heart. 
The person's heart is where each kernel landed looking for good soil in which to germinate and grow. It did not find it in the first three instances. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 4 that we are to, above all else, guard our heart, for everything you do flows from it, Proverbs says. Or as another translation puts it, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We talk about hard-hearted individuals and generally associate them with absence of mercy, kindness, generosity, etc. Why, we may ask, weren't all the four hearts made up of productive soil? Why only the last? I think it's because that fertile heart belongs to the penitent person who recognizes his condition and seeks forgiveness. Jesus spoke about two men who came to the temple in uh, Luke's gospel. And these, uh, the purpose of coming was to, uh, was to obtain forgiveness. And the first one was a uh, somewhat arrogant, uh, hyper-religious man who turned his face toward heaven and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, especially this tax collector. I'm not like him. And the other person, the tax collector, uh, slouched his shoulders and bowed his head and mumbled the words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus left no doubt about which of the two went away from that meeting with their sins forgiven. You see, the preparation and readiness of the heart, the soil of our heart, is a miraculous undertaking by God. It's God's work. In Romans, Paul informs us that it is the goodness of God that leads men and women to repentance. It's God's work. In Acts 16, we're we're introduced to a woman by the name of Lydia who's down by the river near her hometown of Philippi. And um, she's with another group of people and they're listening to the Apostle Paul as he is talking to them and teaching them. And the Bible says... um, Lydia listened with intensity to to what was being said by Paul and the master gave her a trusting heart and she believed. The preparation of the heart is God's work. Todd's declaration to the congregation before communion is always that this this table is for those who know Jesus or who want to know him. Remember, the preparation of the heart is God's work. Then, interestingly, he tells another story, starting in verse 24. I'll just read this to you. He told another story. God's kingdom is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. That night, while his hired men were asleep, his enemy sowed thistles all through the wheat and slipped away before dawn. When the first green shoots appeared and the grain began to form, the thistles showed up too. The farmhands came to the farmer and said, Master, that was clean seed that you planted, wasn't it? Where did these thistles come from? He answered, Some enemy did this. The farmhands farmhands asked, Should we weed out the thistles? He said, No, if you weed the thistles, you'll pull up the wheat too. Let them grow together until harvest time. Then I'll instruct the harvesters to pull up the thistles and tie them in bundles for the fire. Then gather the wheat and put it in the barn. His first set of metaphors dealt with the seed, his message falling on different types of soil. But in this story, 
the soil is properly cultivated and prepared, the seed is planted correctly, and a great harvest is expected. But something else takes place after the proper sowing process. At night, when the farmer and his employees are asleep, an enemy goes into the planted field and drops seeds from noxious plants, which are intended to compromise the growth of the good plants. The problem was that the evil plan didn't become evident till the seeds of both the good and the noxious plants started to grow together. I recall as a boy helping my dad during planting season on the farm. The seed drill was a farm implement about 25 feet wide and uh, um, in which grain kernels were dropped by gravity through metal tubes and through revolving discs which were sort of in a V pattern and uh, this, these revolving discs opened up a small trench in the soil and that's where the uh, seed mixed with fertilizer was dropped into this shallow trench. And then it was covered over by a flat metal device called a harrow which was dragged behind the, the, the seed drill. We never knew how straight were the rows of seed being dropped or if any of the metal tubes had become plugged until the plants started to grow. Then the proof was in the seeing. A crooked line of growing plants meant the tractor driver hadn't been paying attention to where he was going, or a partial row of plant vacancy meant that one of the tubes had been plugged. As far as weeds growing alongside grain plants, this was addressed after the plants were well into the growing cycle. The rows would be sprayed with chemicals which would kill the weeds but not the grain. Not the most organic solution, but that's how it was done at that time. When the farmer in Jesus' story was told that someone had intentionally planted weeds after the good seed, his instruction was to let the two grow together since pulling out the bad ones would damage or kill the good plants. This has always been instructive for me an acknowledgement that in our lifetime there will be evil which necessarily much co must coexist with good. God's solution is to deal with the evil plants at harvest time. At that time, the evil or the weeds will be separated from the grain plants and burned. The harvest from the good seed plants will still take place. I find some comfort in acknowledging this conclusion especially when trying to explain the horrific things which happen to some people in our world. I have also discovered the frightening reality that my heart itself is the receptacle of coexisting good and evil. What are we to do with this discovery? Well, by way of a short review, the seed which falls on fertile soil and leads to a bountiful harvest is representative of God's kingdom message delivered to a heart which he has prepared and has been understood and responded to. The result will be evidence of growth and eventual harvest. When we plant a seed in our garden, there is no need to tell that seed what to do. In the correct environment, it grows and produces fruit. The growth and maturing of the plant is evidence of life. So it is with God's kingdom message sown in the fertile soil of our heart. Our growth and maturity is evidence of spiritual life. Our desire for God can be seen in the growing evidence. So why is it then that Christians tell us, especially veteran Christians, 
that even after committing their lives to God, they face temptation and sometimes even moral failure. Doesn't the fertile soil continue to sustain kingdom growth? I think the answer is found in the second story in today's reading. In this world, good is coexisting with evil. The kingdom message will prevail and will be victorious, but for the time being, it exists with evil's message. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. uh, wrote a book called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and in it he writes, evil rolls across the ages, but so does good. Good has its own momentum. Corruption never wholly succeeds. Even blasphemers acknowledge God. Creation is stronger than sin and grace stronger still. Creation and grace are anvils that have worn out a lot of our hammers. C.S. Lewis also writes that evil is a parasite and could never exist unless there was good to begin with. But God who planted um, the message in the fertile soil of our heart hasn't abandoned us after, after planting season. It's not, we plant the seed today and now you're on your own. That's not the kind of God we have and serve. The Bible has so many instructive messages for the growing spiritual lives of God's followers. We saw one of these earlier. Remember, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. King David, whom no one denies loved God, wrote in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. His sins of adultery and murder weighed upon him, and his choice was to humble himself before God and admit his moral failure. God forgave him. He always forgives the penitent sinner. But there is a harvest law which our parents taught us. We reap what we sow, even though there is forgiveness. And David experienced the reality of that law. So here's the deal. All of us are sinners, including Christian people. No surprise there. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow, what words of comfort for the person who is struggling with the coexistence of good and evil in his heart. All people are invited by God to humble themselves and confess their sins, and because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, which is God's idea, and God's plan, he's able to act justly in forgiving our sins. So there you have it. When the seed of God's word finds fertile ground in our penitent and humble hearts, it starts a process. And we have a responsibility to do our part in protecting and tending the soil of our hearts. That's what it means to guard our hearts during the growing cycle, acknowledging that there are forces that want to derail and compromise the harvest. The harvest, of course, is the kingdom contribution made by our healthy growth in the lives of other people. I love the 23rd Psalm. I always have. 
the last part of it says, uh, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I've always thought of these two, uh, these two um, ideas um, um, Goodness and mercy, thank you. <clears throat> I've always thought of these two as, as friends, which kind of follow me, and uh, as a gift from God, they provide solutions for me as I navigate my way through life. But last week, I was thinking about, I was thinking about it, and I think there's more to it than that. There's, there's another way to look at that. I, I think goodness and mercy are also the byproducts and the evidence which can be seen in the wake of the life that is guarding their heart as they grow spiritually, in the life of the person that is guarding their heart as they grow spiritually, growing in Christ. In closing, I'd like to read a journal entry that I made several months ago when I was considering some of these passages in Matthew. <clears throat> it sort of sums up what I've tried to impart today. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, I have been a, a follower of Jesus for approximately 42 years. And, um, and, and I tell you that not for any other reason than to, to be encouraged. If you're a younger Christian, if you've been following the Lord and, and, and are patently aware of this coexistence of good and evil in each of us, um, I, I tell you this to encourage you because... I guess I'm up there with the other veterans at 42 years. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like when my good friend Bill, who's, who golfs, Bill and I golf together with a group of people, and, and uh, when a good golfer like Bill hits a bad shot, there's a, bit of, there, there's a bit of an encouragement in that for duffers like me. Uh, the, the, the idea that somebody who has been on the road for a long time is struggling with the same thing that you are, can be an encouragement. That's the only reason I tell you that I've been on the road for 42 years. Here's what I wrote in my journal. I want my heart to be the fertile, productive soil in which God's, wor God's word germinates and brings forth life. But I admit that so much of the time my heart is toxic and barren of nutrition, in need of restoration. The expo land, which is now part of Yaletown, was once occupied by sawmills, chemical plants, and factories. Li Kai Ching, after Expo 86, purchased all the Expo land for $20 million, an attractive deal on the surface. But before he developed the land, he was required to remove all of the industrially contaminated soil. Now this area has been developed into pleasant neighborhoods with David Lamb and George Wainwright Parks as showpieces where people relax and enjoy leisure time and activities. This is the type of restoration my heart needs. The toxic nature needs removal and renewal. City of Vancouver engineers and scientists oversaw and monitored the process, and something beautiful finally came to be from a barren and dead zone of our city. God creating in me a new heart and renewing a right spirit is able to change the deadness within me to a productive to a productive zone for kingdom glory. Miracle. But I want this, Lord. And I recognize that in this world, till you come to redeem us all, there will be some coexistence and tension with evil and wrong. 
Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words which Jesus spoke spoke in this morning's reading. May your spirit take them along with our thoughts and our deliberations about them and plant them in hearts which you have prepared and are preparing so that they may contribute to your harvest of kingdom glory. Amen.